0: Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. This week we begin a sermon series on 2 Thessalonians called Endgame, and if you're wondering what 2 Thessalonians has to do with the word endgame, we're going to Part of the church year where churches across the world in the church season celebrate the end times, it's called, when we look forward to Jesus coming back. And it gives us great encouragement as we live our lives as Christians, sometimes wondering where God is in his presence of the hidden God in our life when he will be revealed, and he is coming very soon. The definition of end game, according to the Millennials Webster Dictionary, Google, Endgame, the final stage of a game such as chess or bridge when few pieces or cards remain. Any chess players in here? We had a couple first service. You could play online. You play people across the world online now in chess. You know what I'm talking about. If you ever played checkers, you've had an endgame experience as well when there's just a couple pieces left in football just a couple seconds left on the clock, maybe a minute, maybe a minute and a half. The coach has to do what with his timeouts? He has to use them carefully because he's playing the end game, trying to figure out how much time is left, how much time he can get for his team when they get the ball back to win the game. In politics, there's an end game coming Tuesday, right? Politicians are (laughs) choosing. I just saw somebody go, oh, finally. There's an end game coming when politicians today, tomorrow, Monday are choosing which states to be in and which states they say I'm conceding. They're playing the end game. Parents, you and I play an end game, don't we, with our little kids? It's called bedtime. <laughs> we renegotiate who's going to brush teeth first, uh, renegotiate how many books are going to be read until we can finally get them into bed and get the lights off and then the win. End game. Life is not a game, and that's not what we're trying to say when we're talking about the series Endgame. Life with God in our life is something a lot bigger, Um, but this world that we live in is so secular, and there's this growing um, uh, anti-God feeling among many, many in the world that we as believers recognize how small it sometimes seems and how Vulnerable we are to the attacks of the outside. And we wonder sometimes in our heart, just like the Thessalonians are wondering, what God's plan is for the end. What is God's end game? And so for the next four weeks, you're going to hear from one of the four Holy Word pastors about 2 Thessalonians and how God is playing out his game at the end of the world until he comes back. What our attitude should be. How we have hope, what God's plan is, what God's end game is. OK? Today we deal with the question as we live in this end-game scenario: Is God just? Um, very often it doesn't seem like he's just, because there's times in life when believers or people that put their hope in Christ uh, actually are penalized for that, and it hurts. It hurts to be a believer in this world, and you wonder when you're persecuted, and there's trials big and small, long and short, maybe you're in a season of life where you are being persecuted for your faith at work, at school, wherever, you wonder to yourself, God, are you fair? Are you really fair? Are you really just? This was going on in the Thessalonians' mind as well. To start, let's start with a, um, today's message with a mind experiment, a mind game. I'm going to say a word, and you're going to think to yourself, what word, what thought, what feeling does that word bring up, okay? So we're going to play a game real quick. I'm going to say some words. Maybe I'll even call on you afterwards to say what you, how you felt after I read some of these words. Some of them are kind of scary. I'm just going to warn you, okay? Middle school. Middle child. Middle management. Middle class. Middle class. Midterms, middle of the pack, middle seat, mid-grade fuel, middle man, Malcolm in the middle. Okay, the last one had nothing to do with my point. I'm just trying to keep it so that you're awake. What kind of feelings got brought up when I said those words? What feelings did it engender in you? Anybody? Anybody? Maybe even the crickets are a sign to me that nothing that I said in those words were really that inspiring, were they? You're right in the middle. Middle uh, this week I was filling up and I looked uh, filling up my car and I looked at the mid grade fuel and I thought to myself, who in the world ever fills up with mid grade fuel? Why do they even do they even get any sales off of that? I mean, if you're going to go for good fuel, you're going to go all the way. Why would you go for? And maybe you're thinking yourself middle school and horror comes over you. You're not quite there yet, and you're back in Mr. Plucker's pre-algebra class, middle school. There's nothing really inspiring about being in the middle, but that's exactly where some people are spiritually. They get baptized, they're on fire for the Word of God, they're praying continually, they're in the Word of God, they're in small groups, they're, they're going, 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 and then all of a sudden life happens, and let's say that there's problems in the marriage and suddenly they feel very very human again and very sinful and all of a sudden the fight of faith becomes difficult and they begin to wane and they begin to grow tired because they're in the middle no new year's resolution ever fails at the beginning does it where does it fail in the middle it's tough the background of the second thessalonians book that we're going into we find the thessalonians right in the middle Paul has been going around from city to city in Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, about 20 years after Jesus lived, died, was raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. Uh, Paul, the missionary, is going around from city to city, and he is preaching the gospel in the synagogues. He's being driven away from every city by the religious elite who's growing jealous of Paul's success with the gospel and people coming to faith in a, in a faith that they don't believe in. Paul goes to Thessalonica, a city that we consider today like a major hub, like a Dallas or a New York or a Chicago, a big city back then, 200,000. The Via Ignatia, an ancient highway runs through it. There's a major port, so there's a lot of trade and commerce going on. Paul goes to that city and he preaches for three consecutive weeks in the synagogue there, or the religious center. And there, many people come to faith. But as people are coming to faith, what do the religious elites do again? They rile up a crowd, they cause, they, they cause riots, and Paul is blamed for all the riots, and he's driven away from the city, leaving Timothy, his traveling companion, behind in Thessalonica. He leaves wondering what's happening to the spiritual life of the Thessalonians, they, like many of the Christians back then, were going under intense persecution, no doubt. They could have been blacklisted from their community. They could have had their businesses gone under because of their belief. They would have been pushed out of the church life. They would have even lost family members, and maybe even some of them their own lives, because they were believers. Timothy catches up with Paul later. We learn this from Acts chapter 17 when he goes to Thessalonica, and then he's forced out. He comes to Paul later, and he gives this report about the Thessalonians, and he says this: the Thessalonians aren't wilting underneath the pressure. In fact, the Thessalonians, he says to Paul, are thriving. The pressure that's being put on them, the trials, the temptations to give up the faith, they're causing the gospel to explode even more. And Paul is encouraged, and so he writes back to the Thessalonians in First and Second Thessalonians, encouraging them with two things. Number one, he says, keep going in your faith. God is faithful and he is with you and he's not going to give up on you. And number two, he says, God is coming back. That's why we call this End Game series, End Game. God is coming back and he's going to make everything that's wrong right again. And you're going to know and see, he says, at the end of your life and at the end of time that it was worth the fight all along. They're asking themselves, is everything fair? And Paul is addressing that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In verses 3 to 7, in fact, on the upper right-hand corner of page 9, it should say 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 7 instead of 5 to 10. Part 1, God's grace in the middle. Remember the question that we're asking, is God just? They're wondering that. They're in the middle, in an awkward position. And here, verse 3 says, We, Paul and his traveling companions, the missionaries, ought always to thank God for you, the Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love of the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Now normally, persecutions and trials cause us to do two things. What, are, what does it cause us to do? It either causes us to fight, get offensive, and fight back and take out justice on that person that's... That, that's offending us, or that's persecuting us, or it, it causes us to flight, right? Fight or flight. It causes us to curl up in a little ball in the fetal position in the corner and and run away from the bully. As believers, we learn from the Second Thessalonians chapter one that neither is true. When you have God and Jesus in your life during the trials and persecutions, you don't f- run away and you don't fight back. Instead, do you see what's happening here? Three things. First of all, Paul says faith is growing. Verse 3, the more that they're being persecuted, the more that their faith in God is growing in him and they're growing stronger and stronger in the belief that God is there and God is with them through it all. Number two, their love is increasing. In fact, Paul says that he's bragging to all the churches around Macedonia. And he's saying, look, as they're going through that trial, as they're losing their homes, as they're losing their businesses, as they're being persecuted, the love is actually expanding more and more. In other words, their capacity for love for other people is growing. And we know that in the early Christian church from Acts chapter 2, that they met daily in homes of each other. That in the persecution, they were at each other's doorsteps, helping each other out, selling their goods, and giving towards one another. And number three, believers endure. You saw it right there. He says, through the um, persecutions and trials, you are enduring. You might be saying, well, that's great, and that's true for the Thessalonians, but is God doing that in my life? I want to use an example and use Jonah. Jonah and the fish, right? At the beginning of that story of Jonah and the fish, what does God call Jonah to do? Say it. What does he call Jonah to do at the very beginning? Go to Nineveh, right? Nineveh, good or bad? Bad. I get a thumbs down. Okay, Ninevites, bad. Ninevites are the enemies of Israel. Ninevites are the ones that would attack Israel and and be at war with Israel. Ninevites are bad. And God says, I want you, Jonah, to go to the Ninevites. I want you to go into the city and preach the gospel. What does Jonah do? Does he go to Nineveh? No, he runs, some theologians think. He was headed on a ship that was going 2,000 miles in the opposite direction of where God wanted him. A self-inflicted faith wound. That's what I call that. Where does Jonah find himself? Halfway through the trip. In the belly of a fish, just where God wanted him. There was a trial that he was going through, a self-inflicted trial, maybe that you've gone through and you've run away from in the past and you found yourself at the bottom of that fish too. Do you know what God does with Jonah on the bottom of the the, the fish? Do you know what he does through him, with him? He calls him to prayer. And in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah's faith grows closer to God because he realizes that he's lost everything without God. And he cries out to God in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, a beautiful prayer that you can read this week for your devotion too. And he says this, From the bottom of the fish, Jonah cried out to God, his Lord. His faith was growing after he hit rock bottom from a self-inflicted faith wound. His faith was growing more and more, and at the end of chapter 2, he is called out to God, and God rescues him. Number two, Jonah's faith through that trial of going to the Ninevites would increase. How? We think at the beginning of the story, we say, well, he didn't go to the Ninevites because he was afraid of them, right? We learn at the end of the story, that's not true. He wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. Do you know what he was afraid of, really? Do you remember? Do you remember? Not in your head. He was afraid that the Ninevites would hear God's word, would repent, and would come to faith in God. In other words, he was, his capacity for love for the Ninevites was so small that he didn't see God's great vision. Like what God said at the end of the book, he said to Jonah, he said, is not my love, is not this city that is Nineveh, this great city worthy of my love? In Jonah's heart it wasn't. But God wanted to use this trial to increase his capacity for love to the unlovable, the Ninevites. And number three, God made Jonah endure. Not only did he bring him out of the belly of the fish, little known fact, at the end of the story, Jonah's not in water, he's under the sun, and he's getting sunburned, he's getting scorched, and do you know what God does for him? He grows a vine over his head to give him shade and give him relief. God is faithful, even to the faithless, and he will make you endure, and he will be there to help you endure. So as you go through your trial, think about your trial right now, whatever it is, if it's recovering from a self-inflicted wound like Jonah or whether it's your faith that you're living out that's being persecuted in the public square or in the private home, your faith is growing, your love is increasing, and God will endure with you and he will make you endure. That's an encouragement for believers. God's grace in the middle. It's okay to be in the middle. It's okay to be persecuted in the middle because God is at work the whole time. Interesting thing is, is that answers the question that we asked at the very beginning. Is God just? Does God repay sinners for what they're owed? Is God fair? Paul says in the next couple of verses, yes. Look on to the next couple of verses. Verse five says, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. What is he talking about here? When he says all this is evidence, he's taking you and me into the courtroom on the last day. The last day is... What verse 7 says, the day that Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He's taking us to that courtroom scene. And he's saying, Dan, here you are before God, and the evidence is all in front of him, God. God's going to judge you by your evidence, and here is the evidence. When Paul says in verse 5, all this is evidence, he's referring back to those verses just before this, and he's saying this. He's saying, In the middle, life in the middle, God looks down at that life and he saw some things. He saw exhibit A, your faith exists and it's growing. He saw B, exhibit B, that your love is increasing. And he sees C, that believers and you endured through it all and you made it to the end. And then God says this, this is the verdict. After he looks at exhibit A, B, and C, he says you're counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And that's God's end plan. Now, I have a problem with that. Do you? Because the only thing that God included in that courtroom were exhibit A, B, and C, and everything looks right. But did you know that God has access to all of my emails? (laughs) And did you know that God knows every disgusting thing that Pastor Dan said on a mic? And there's, there's not one corner of my life That God doesn't know about public or private if it gets leaked or if it doesn't get leaked and the same is true for you and you scratch your head and you wonder on that last day God a b and c love increasing faith enduring but what happened to the rest where is the rest is this some sort of game where's the fallout going to be is God just or is he just forgetful the answer is at the cross of Jesus This is the beautiful thing about that courtroom because you're not alone in that courtroom. You're there with a Savior who lived 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was born and lived a life just like you and me, except every time that he was tempted, he didn't give in. His faith was perfect towards God and towards his neighbor. His love increased perfectly. He raised men off of mats. He called corpses out of tombs. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. His love towards the Ninevites was perfect, you could say, where your and my love is imperfect. Jesus was perfectly enduring the cross all the way to the cross where he, even though innocent, was put to death in our place, in your place, in pastor's damn place. And so that the very same Jesus that died on the cross, that took away all of the sins and all of the iniquities and all of the tapes and all of the microphones, was the same one at the courtroom there's a couple passages that the Bible gives us about what Jesus' life means in the end on that last day. One of them came 500 years before Jesus. Isaiah said this. You to put it up on the screen. Let's read this one together. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people. He was punished. There, right there, you see that he was punished for the transgression of my people. Who is God's people? You. On the last day, you have Jesus in the courtroom. And there's no way that God can see, know, that there's anything against you because it was all taken away. Isaiah said so. And Paul said so. The same author of 2 Thessalonians wrote 2 Corinthians. Let's go to the next verse. He said this about what Jesus Um, perfect life, innocent death in our place, really means in our life. Here it is. Let's read it together. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is bringing somebody back into a relationship. God has brought you back into a relationship, so all he sees is exhibit A, B, and C, and none of the rest. Um, I got this question uh, a while back. It was in a connect group. Uh, The question was this. At the end of time when Jesus comes back, is there going to be like a big screen TV for the whole world to see and God's going to turn on the recording of my life and every moment of my life, good and bad and ugly and disgusting, is going to be put on the screen for all the world to see? Has anybody ever thought about that question before? I have. I have. It bothered me for a long, long time. But then when I think about passages like this, and I answered the question this way, how could, how could God play a movie of all of the ugly, disgusting things and sins that you did if the tape doesn't exist? <laughs> Do not be troubled, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. Don't be troubled by persecution. Don't be troubled by your sins past and present because that tape doesn't exist That tape was paid for on the cross. And the same for you. Don't be troubled. There is no tape. There's only Jesus. Jesus' cross proves God's perfect justice and love because it's there on the cross. He perfectly took away everything that you and I did wrong. His justice is perfect and his love is perfect. There's a couple other things that we learn about um, the last day right here. He says, verse 6, God is just he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. In other words, there will be a time uh, when all those people and the people that are truly persecuting God and, 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 and His church are going to be judged for what they're doing. It's sad, too, because Jesus is not in their courtroom on the last day, and the video plays and everything is seen because they don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> That could make us feel, and the Thessalonians feel great, yeah, they're going to get it in the end, but really that makes you feel empathy, doesn't it? Because those people are living next door to us. Those people are in our families. God does not want anybody to be lost but all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he offers relief to them as well, and so he's given us a time of grace. Some of us 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, some of us less to come to faith and to bring the message, to interfere in the life of the unbeliever, to interfere in their life and to tell them about what Jesus and what Jesus in their courtroom really means. God will give you relief, but there's something in the middle that you and I are going to go through. He says it this way. He says, You will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, like we are in Jesus, this is verse 5, for which you are suffering. In other words, there's going to be suffering attached to your faith and to your belief. Uh, Easiest way to illustrate illustrate this is thinking back to my days uh, playing high school football. Any high school football players in here? You might remember summer um, preseason conditioning. Do you remember this? Maybe you remember going back to school early before everybody else. And in our small school in Wisconsin, we would have a week of two-a-days. In fact, I even think three-a-days a a couple of times. Well, we definitely had a -a three-a-day the day before the day off, right? That was the worst where you would run and run and run. It was Friday afternoon or Friday late evening when we would do our last conditioning before the weekend off, and the coach would run us up the field, the full distance, plus the end zone, sprint, walk the end zone. Run, walk, run, walk, run, walk. Six times in a row. And that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but once you run a football field, you'll know it hurts, and it hurt a lot. By the end of it, there was not one person that was upright. In fact, everybody was on their knee, hands on the knees at least. Some of them were over the fence. Some of them were in the bathroom At by that point. The point being, that next Saturday, did you know, if you take a look at us, that we looked like 90-year-old people walking around. No offense to 90-year-olds. If I'm even alive and walking at 90-year-olds, you're doing really well. But we would be walking around. Like this, the whole time, very tenderly, our, our muscles would be burning. Our, our necks would be sore, and we would know that we were on the team together. And everybody who had that pain inside of them knew that they were on that team. It wasn't the letter jackets. It wasn't the name. It wasn't the number on your jacket. It was the pain on the inside that really made you identify with being on that team in that moment. When God says that there's going to be suffering that goes along with your faith, That means that everything that Jesus has gone through, all the suffering, all the pain, and the pain that comes into your life, the subsequent pain that comes into your life because of that, is evidence, he says, that you are accounted worthy of the kingdom of God. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of everything he has done. And because he has done it, you can have pain in your life, and that's not a bad thing. The final takeaways for today. Thinking about everything that we just talked about, life in the middle, the persecutions, God's justice, how should we respond? What are going to be our goals for life in the middle? Well, number one, we learned at the Thessalonians that their faith increased. So, we will grow our faith. What is the faith fertilizer? What is it that grows faith? Say it. The Word, Holy Word, that's the name of our church. We're going to emphasize day to day, this week too, that as we live life in the middle, wondering about God's purpose and plan for us, what's more important Is that our faith is growing just like the Thessalonians? That happens in your private devotion life, in your Bible reading plans on your app. That happens in connect groups when we meet around God's Word and we grow in the knowledge just like we are today in the stories of Jonah and the stories of the Thessalonians about how God is at work in your life. To be growing your faith is more important than to be asking what your purpose is, God in the middle. And if you're going underneath intense trials and persecution for your faith, your goal is to be going back to the Word of God and growing in that faith. Number two, we take from the Thessalonians that we want to expand our capacity for love. In the early church, uh, the Christians were selling and giving to one another's needs. We want to do that in every way possible, even underneath persecution, because that's what faith does. It increases our capacity for love. It increases our capacity for the Ninevites that are next door. And it makes us love those people all the more. How does that happen in our church community? It happens when we have events to invite our neighbors in, like uh, the upcoming Advent by Candlelight, devotion and dessert for women, women leading women in a real conversation and a night of music around what the true meaning of Christmas is. It happens in the things like the tree in the back that we're giving towards orphans that won't have a family to celebrate Christmas at but you see how the capacity for love increases the night in Bethlehem later this month when we're sharing the story of Christmas with families and young people. This happens at Holy Word, but it doesn't just happen at Holy Word. It happens in your life and in your circle as well. It's the natural result of what the Thessalonians were doing, and it's the natural result of what God wants us to do too. And finally, number three, you think about all of those people that don't have Jesus in the courtroom on the last day. And you mourn over them. But you don't just stop at mourning over them, you pray for them. And then you intersect their life with the gospel. You network them with the gospel, you network them with your church in any way that you can. So that we, together, as a body, can reach them and give them Jesus in their courtroom by the last day. So they too will be saved. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Acts chapter 1. And he's called you to be witnesses as well. Okay, as we start the series, end game, keep in mind that life in the middle isn't all that bad. Why? Because Jesus is there. He's increasing your faith in the Word of God. He's increasing your love for one another. And he's with you as you are as witnesses to people before he comes back. And my prayer is that you take this series, and we take this series, as you listen to your pastors preach it, read through 2 Thessalonians so that you can be prepared and your heart can be prepared week to week about how God wants to prepare us with his endgame and his plan. Amen.